Welcome back to Almost Heretical. It's Nate here with Shelby, and today is the last episode of the Canon series, episode four. Shelby, what are we looking at today? Yeah, we are finally finishing up this series that we've been going through, and we're going to be moving kind of from this world full of texts that we've been talking about to the growing consensus and a bit more of the definitive lists and moments that happen to make the New Testament essentially what it is today. So covering a lot of ground right here at the end, but it's going to be pretty exciting. Awesome. I'm excited. Let's dive on in. All right. So a common claim that we're going to start off with is that in order to fight heretical movements, uh, the church needed to finalize a canon, that the canon kind of happened because the church was trying to reject all the heresies that were going on. So we're going to kind of look at that claim and piece apart a few different heretical, quote-unquote heretical movements, um, and see how that did or did not play into the process of canonization. We'll find that sometimes it was motivator, sometimes it wasn't. So, first of those, just diving right in, is um, called Marcionism. Probably not something very well known by people today, unless you know, you kind of study this sort of thing, but it was a movement started in the mid-2nd century by a man by the name of Marcion, thus the title of Marcionism, and he emphasized this antithesis between the God of the Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures and the God of Jesus. Like so this would be shortly after Jesus then? Yeah. You said 2nd century? Yeah, like 100 years after. Okay. Which, and we've talked about in some of these other episodes, some of these Gospels were not written... You know, so about not, that time. Yeah, they're, they're right around there too, right? So... Right. These are, we're, I think it's it's kind of in that, like, the scene is set for, like, what's going to make it, what's going to last, like, what's going to, what's, these things are, like, popping up, right? Mm-hmm. Like, these stories are popping up, these, that what, what people remember and people's ideas, you're kind of, like, throwing things out there. It feels like, you know, in the late 90s when the internet's booming, <laughs> you know, and you're like, what company is going to, like, mm. probably lots of people had the idea for a company where you could buy books online or different things online or, you know, and just like different things are popping up, starting up, and which ones are going to last, which ones are going to stick and take off. Yeah, and, probably the most unorthodox of all um, analogies here, but I thought of like, like the primordial quagmire in which maybe evolutionary life developed, mm. you know, millions of years ago that, uh, I mean, yeah. That's a lot, lot of, of good th- words right there, by the way. Oh, I thank you. <laughs> But um, if, you know, a lot of things could have potentially been starting, jumping out of the Mm -hmm. liquid, and and a lot of things were, and it was just, over time was a matter of which of these would be, would survive, the survival of the fittest. I mean, survival of the fittest is a pretty fit analogy for this process, although some people might hate that I say that. But it's a really interesting way to think about it because, you know, I think, especially people coming from a very reformed tradition... Like, I grew up thinking, you know, you, there's one person that you were going to marry, marry and you knew exactly who it was, or you were going to know exactly who it was, and that's the only person, and there's no other option, and it's just one path, and there's that exact job, and you were supposed to do this exact, everything is predetermined, you know, we're just kind of like following this maze that's already laid out for us, essentially. Just trying to figure out the will of God constantly. Right. And I guess, like, when we're looking at this, it just, you know, you, you bring the humanity back into this situation, and you go... So many things, you know, maybe some movement didn't start, and we'll talk about this specific movement, but maybe there's some movements we don't even know about. Mm, definitely. <laughs> yeah, that, like, didn't start because, didn't, like, make it off the ground simply because, like, that group just didn't have, you know, the parchment required to, like, write about it or mm-hmm. something. And so, like, it they was a cool women, thing. Maybe. Yeah, or they were women. And it was, you know, 
this cool thing for this group of people that did that, but like it didn't really make it out of that little community. It didn't make it out of that room. It didn't make it out of that, you know, that village or whatever. And we just don't know about it. And maybe it's, you know, not that significant. Maybe it is. I don't know. But there's just so many little things like mm-hmm. that you think about. And they might have been great. Might have been really cool. And like you reading about today, you might have been like, wow, we should, you know, we should have more of that in our practice or we should have, you know, more of that in our services or whatever it is. Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking like there's there's a lot of possibility for good things out there in the in the Christian tradition. I mean, even just in that tradition alone, a lot of good things that we just might not know about, not because they were wrong or heretical or sinful or, you know, all these things that maybe we used to think, but just because they, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't make it. Yeah, I actually think that, I mean, everything you're saying there is one of the biggest takeaways from the series. And I'm, I mean, we're going to come back to it even at the end of this episode of just this mentality of openness. And, you know, it's easy. I don't know if this is a version of like hindsight being 2020, but it's easy to look back and assume that the way things have happened is the way they were supposed to happen. Yeah. And, you know, contradicting that doesn't necessarily mean that the way things happened is the way they weren't supposed to happen or that it's bad or right there's no judgment on it it's just a matter of the way things happen is just the way they happened and that any change in so many factors i mean we've all played that game we're like if you could go back and change one thing in history it's it's called the butterfly effect right yeah i didn't know the name yeah a butterfly flaps its wings in oh Mm. someone's gonna correct me on this but a butterfly flaps its wings like in the south pacific somewhere and the the little wind that that causes creates a hurricane in a hurricane in the in the Atlantic, yeah. Gotcha. Huh. Yeah, I mean that kind of thing is important to just consider and hold as reality when you're dealing with something like religion and something like these texts that have been historically considered so incredibly authoritative to just recognize that the process that they took to get here which is really why we've done this whole series oh so many of the things you were saying i was like ah there's so many cool directions well we and could i remember go. you know first finding out about this and there's like a brief moment i think i was in less of a deconstructed phase at the time this is probably you know seven eight nine years ago and which is crazy to say <laughs> you know I, in my mind i've been deconstructing for two years like that's <laughs> just yeah i haven't updated the numbers you know yeah but I remember first kind of stumbling on these and there's that first moment where you're like, oh, I mean, it's like finding out some mythical creature or whatever is like not real as a kid or something mm. like that. And, you know, you you start to learn about the process. I saw the, you know, I watched this video by uh, Tim Mackey that he gave at a church that I was a part of down in San Francisco about the making of the Bible. And it's just this very human process. And the way he laid it out was you know, just showing that the the humanity of the process. And I remember at first, you know, for a few moments, you're like, this kind of, you know, changes everything, but not in a good way. Like Mm -hmm. the magic's gone, you know, kind of took the... Everything uh, feels flat. Yeah. Or what's the the Wizard of Oz? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. the the curtain's removed and you like see how the whole process works. And it's not this just perfect book that's just handed to you. And, but then... And I remember telling people this in my deconstruction journey in those first few years. I think it made it all much, much cooler to me. The fact that, and we've mentioned this in this series, the fact that you know thousands and thousands, millions of people have cared enough to preserve the, these texts, to preserve tradition, to preserve like all of these stories, 
over the course of thousands of years. And some of them cared enough to preserve other ones that yeah. are not right that we haven't read yet and caring to like yeah try to find those and dig them up and mm -hmm. you know study the ones that we do find and all that kind of stuff like the fact that people are devoting themselves to that to me it tells me much more about this tradition and these stories i mean honestly that's one of the things that keeps me believing that there was probably someone named jesus of nazareth that did these things any bit at all is because of what people have done to preserve these things now tablets from heaven that's what it sounds like that could be just anything you know like i don't know but, i mean it's but, kind of like in this you've talked about this before in previous episodes again to use a you know maybe unwelcome analogy but the analogy of creation versus maybe evolutionary science of just when you're suddenly i think us as maybe teenagers or young adults were given permission to like just follow the science where it led as far as what how does the earth and the universe work and how where did it come from it's similar like studying canonization i mean we never studied canonization in church and you would think that that would be the most welcome thing to study would be the formation of the bible but for some reason because there's this aura of untouchability we never studied it so when you're suddenly given permission to see this as you know a non-aurad human human document then you get to study it. And I mean, I, now I love doing that. And I mean, I'm doing this series because I just lo have loved studying where where these things came from and who was influencing it. I mean, now we're talking about some random guy from the second century named Marcion. Which I pro promise we'll get back to you, Marcion. <laughs> um, you'll, have your, you'll have your moment. But I mean, you had your moment, but you'll have another moment. I'll have another moment. But, you know, I think just with any curiosity voyage, I think is what they call it on um, Stranger Things. Mm. I'm on a curiosity voyage. Any curiosity <laughs> voyage you go on, it's only authentic. It's only real if you can turn over every stone that's possible to turn over. And even ones that you turn over and you're like, ah, there's nothing there. But just turn them all over. And if you can't do that, then is it, you know, if you're scared of like, well, I can't go down. I can't look at, you know, that stuff over there because that might reveal some, you know, something that <laughs> I can't find. I mean, that's how I felt about like evolution you know, growing up. It's like, ah, I can't, you know, I don't want to find anything on Mars because that means that Jesus wasn't real or something. Look, I want to put a pin. I just want everyone to remember this, this moment that we're talking about right here and this process of unturning or turning over every stone because we're going to come to a, something later in the episode that I had no idea was going to be a full circle moment, but it's going to be a full circle moment. Have you moment. practiced teases? Because that was a great tease. You know, you want to you wanna tease something later in the... I like <laughs> no. it. I like it. Okay, so... No, I'm like almost tearing up because of what you guys are going to come to in probably about 40 minutes. So. Oh, this is the tease is getting better. Okay, <laughs> so let's get back to... What's the guy's name? All right, Marcian. I'm just assumed it's a guy. It is a guy. Okay. Yeah, they're all guys. Except, I mean, not to tangent one more time, but I've talked about this on previous episodes of... I feel like Mary Magdalene very likely could have had her own kind of christian movement i mean it wouldn't have been called christian because the magdalene's yeah probably the magdalene's yeah. and we just maybe never heard of it because either maybe they never wrote anything or maybe it was never discussed and found so anyway back to marcy he was he got some more recognition so he was the reason he was considered heretical and unorthodox was because um he really separated the God of Old Testament from the New Testament. I mean, those didn't exist yet. But the God of the Hebrew scriptures, Judaism versus God of Jesus. He saw those as very different gods. So, of course, that was a problem for the mainstream um, forming Christians. Um, again, these are all kind of nebulous categories with mm. nebulous leaders, but that was in general not favorably accepted. 
Um, that meant he rejected the Hebrew scriptures, which you can imagine why most early Christians would have issue with that, considering that Jesus quoted those scriptures quite, um, quite frequently and didn't seem to be rejecting them at all. He also rejected Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, so so he really just separated Jesus from Judaism entirely. So yeah, it seems like he was more starting a whole of, new deal, right? And more like a Jewish type of like trying to keep Judaism as its thing, or maybe not. I think he was trying to move on from Judaism. Like he was not okay. a Jew, and right, but like keep Judea like keep Judaism its thing and like do something different. Oh, maybe I don't know that keeping Judaism its thing was necessarily his goal. He was just okay. saying that I don't think that's what Jesus was doing. He only accepted Paul's writings. Hmm. And Luke, which so is kind of tied your, to Paul. your opposite. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> you don't accept. No, um, which is interesting. Be, but even within Paul's writings, he removed any of the pro Jewish elements that he, and he claimed that these were later additions. So he was pretty anti Jew at that. I mean, it's complicated. There's more to it. I'm not an expert on Marcion, but this is just an overview. But he, he did kind of create the first, by, by saying which texts he used and which ones he didn't, he kind of was one of the first people to create essentially a Christian canon. And this might, the reason we're talking about it is because this may have influenced the speed in which a, a more broad, formal Christian canon became formed, because he's making this one that was considered heretical to the mainstream. So is it kind of like he was creating a canon so then other people were like no 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 that's not it right we're gonna put together the real one yeah we better come up with something else gotcha. but what's interesting is that even though they believed his what he was saying was heretical them creating their own canon wouldn't necessarily have condemned his heretical teachings because he was still using the same texts that they were using hmm. like you know the the whoever this nebulous group of people is that's creating the more broadly accepted New Testament canon, they're also using the letters of Paul. Marcion's using the letters of Paul. Right. So the the issue wasn't really the text. It was the interpretation of the text. And of course, I mean, Marcion took out some bits here and there. But um, so this example has kind of been all that to say that while heresy and these heretical movements were playing into it, it wasn't necessarily... Like creating which texts are in and which texts are out didn't necessarily solve the problem of heretical movements because mm. some a lot of heretical movements used the same text but just interpreted them in different ways. So, so that was our first one, Marcion, Marcionism. The second and the one that we'll spend our the greatest time on here is um, Gnosticism, and this is probably something that most people have heard of. I mean, especially if you've been kind of digging into early Christian history at all. Um, so this Gnosticism starts very early. I mean, probably first or second century. Um, it kind of just, it's, it's hard to pinpoint when exactly, but as, essentially as early as Christianity, Gnosticism starts to develop. And it, the word Gnosticism, spelled G-N-O, silent G at the beginning, comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And the emphasis in Gnosticism is that you have to essentially have this secret knowledge um, which is salvation, that kind of in order to be saved, although we, you know, it would have meant something different to them, but that salvation came through, like, understanding and having a certain kind of knowledge. Um, and we'll kind of talk more about that when we get into one of the texts later. I mean, it sounds familiar to... What's it sound like? It sounds like today, a bit. Like, it sounds like a lot of what I'm familiar with. I mean, we'll say, you know, in some of the traditions that 
I was a pastor and things like that, we'll say it's all about, you know, believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's it. But like what it actually looks like in practice is believing, you mm. know, the right set of doctrines. Yeah. And if you believe this doctrine, you know, you're, uh, but like it's about having the correct knowledge. And some people say no, but then like if you have a different, you know, if you believe something slightly different than that, then you'll pretty quickly find out that that doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work to be a part of this group. I don't know. It just sounded, yeah, yeah. It sounded a little familiar. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I don't know that the Gnostics would say that that's the same thing, but I, w- I don't quite know how to explain how it's different. Well, the so. way you phrased it just yes, sounded, yes, you're it right. sounded similar. That is that's interesting. I, I appreciate that. Another element of Gnosticism, it's very dualist, so it's very separating of the spiritual and the physical, very kind of the physical is bad, the spiritual is good, the physical is impermanent, the spiritual is permanent. This sounds very familiar. <laughs> How does this not... This okay, what, which going. this was not Christian um, teaching for a long time, um, although you're right, it has big, in evangelical like fundamentalism, that yeah, does exactly. sound very okay. similar. Um, but it was it was not technically Orthodox Christianity for a long time. Gnosticism also rejected the Old Testament, so there you go. That's not part of evangelical no, fundamentalism. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Not as familiar. But there's some really interesting history behind Gnosticism. Until recently, we only knew about Gnosticism through the writings of early Christian fathers condemning Gnostics and Gnosticism. So basically them just talking about all the reasons it's problematic and all of the, you know, the threats that it brings to Christianity, like that, that's where we got all of our information. They often quoted this text called the Gospel of Thomas. And so we got little bits and pieces of this text attributed to Thomas. That was clearly one of the foundations of Gnosticism, but we didn't have that text anywhere. Um, So it was kind of one of the big mysteries for scholars of this topic of like, you know, where is the Gospel of Thomas, and will we ever know what what that held? Hmm. Until Nag Hammadi is a collection of texts. It's called the Nag Hammadi Codices. These collections of texts that were discovered in 1945. And the story of it is pretty incredible. I mean... That's before Dead Sea Scrolls. Just before. Right, okay. But, I mean, it was one of the most incredible discoveries that was quickly overshadowed by the enormity of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. But it, it contained... 52 different texts, nearly all of which were Gnostic texts, so just massively expanded what we knew about Gnosticism and, mm. and, and showed us just how developed of a sect of Christianity this had been. I actually want to read, it's a bit of a long quote, but I think it's just fascinating. And I mean, if you close your eyes and just picture this action movie, movie happening, it comes from... Not if you're driving. Um, yeah. The introduction to the book, The Gnostic Gospels by Elaine Pagels. So I'm just going to read this, and it just talks about essentially... The discovery. I just want to set the stage for when we're talking about parchments and fragments, and it sounds really boring, but the actual... I'm like, guessing this is where you wanted to cry? No. no. Oh, what? Yeah. Okay. The tease continues. Yeah. All right. So here it is. 30 years after the discovery, the discoverer himself, Muhammad Ali al-Saman, told what happened. Shortly before he and his brothers avenged their father's murder in a blood feud, They had saddled their camels and gone out to the Jabal to dig for sabak, which is a soft soil they used to fertilize their crops. Digging around a massive boulder, they hit a red earthenware jar, almost a meter high. Muhammad Ali hesitated to break the jar, considering that a jinn or a spirit might live inside. 
but realizing that it also might contain gold, he raised his mattock, smashed the jar, and discovered inside 13 papyrus books bound in leather. Returning to his home in Al-Qasr, Muhammad Ali dumped the books and loose papyrus leaves on the straw piled on the ground next to the oven. Muhammad's mother, Umm Ahmad, admits that she burned much of the papyrus in the oven, along with the straw she used to kindle the fire. Yeah. Moment of silence. A few weeks later, as Muhammad Ali tells it, he and his brothers avenged their father's death by murdering Ahmed Ismail. Their mother had warned her sons to keep their mattocks sharp. When they learned that their father's enemy was nearby, the brothers seized the opportunity, hacked off his limbs, ripped out his heart, and devoured it among them as the ultimate act of revenge. Fearing that the police investigating the murder would search his house and discover the books, remember this is 1945, Muhammad Ali asked the priest, I'm not going to try and pronounce his name, to keep one or more of the books for him. During the time that Muhammad Ali and his brothers were being interrogated for murder, uh, the Oh, Raghib, a local history teacher, had seen one of the books and suspected that it had value. Having received one, Raghib sent it to a friend in Cairo to find out its worth. Sold on the black market through antiquities dealers in Cairo, the manuscript soon attracted the attention of officials in the Egyptian government. Through circumstances of high drama, whatever that means, they bought one and confiscated ten and a half of the 13 leather-bound books, called codices, and deposited them in the Coptic Museum in Cairo. But a large part of the 13th Codex, containing five extraordinary texts, was smuggled out of Egypt and offered for sale in America. Word of this codex soon reached Professor Gilles Quispel, distinguished historian of religion in the Netherlands. Excited by the discovery, Quispel urged the Jung Foundation in Zurich to buy the codex. But discovering when he succeeded that some pages were missing, he flew to Egypt in the spring of 1955 to try to find them at the Coptic Museum. Arriving in Cairo, he went at once to the Coptic Museum, borrowed photographs of some of the texts, and hurried back to his hotel to decipher them. Tracing out the first line, Quispel was startled, then incredulous Wait, to read... Wait, hold on, pause. He did find them at the place? The missing pages that he was yeah. looking for, yeah. Wait, that, I feel like that's a big detail. <laughs> he just goes back to this place and the pages are there? I think so. Whoa. <laughs> that's that's pretty crazy. I mean, how often do we retrace our steps and the thing is where, you know, it's in one of those steps. It's always gone. That's Especially when you're point. talking about a museum, you know, shipping this thing somewhere else. Like, you're pretty sure you get all the stuff, right? I would just assume the pages were just... Missing. Okay, anyways, that just felt like a big detail that yeah, didn't get true. enough attention. I think it's because I was so excited about this, the next detail, which was the opening lines that he read, which said, quote, These are the secret words which the living Jesus spoke and which the twin Judas Thomas wrote down. Quispel knew that he had identified the opening lines of the fragments of a Greek gospel of Thomas. That's the end of the very long wow. quote. Is that the part of the music, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, how crazy was that story of just and and just to i wanted to kind of bring everyone into the excitement of what it is like i mean we had known about this gospel of thomas for thousands of years i mean 1500 to 2000 years and that suddenly someone this guy realizes that they found it like they found a copy of it and and it, it turns out that we i think we've found multiple fragments of it since but this was the only full copy like we now have a full copy of the gospel of mm. thomas and just how huge 
that was. And to, you know, that that was less than 100 years ago. And how much more is still out there? I mean, that was, again, yeah, like we said before the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was just unbelievable. But what's still out there to be found is... Right. I mean, it could continue to change history. Yeah, like how much dirt, how much sand, mm-hmm. how many rocks, how, how many How many caves? earthenware jars are waiting under boulders somewhere in Egypt? Yeah. They're probably in Egypt. And like how many things got dumped in the ocean? Yeah, burned by mothers in the oven. And this yeah, is just one, tradi- this is one tradition. If we talk about history yeah. in total, like yeah. how many things have been lost to history. Yeah, and uh, that's, crazy. I mean, beyond just or oral cultures. I mean, essentially everything's lost there. Can we have an archaeologist on the show? Oh, that, yeah. Let's, let's have an archaeologist on the show. It. Like a Middle East archaeologist, oh. you know. They'll probably tell us it's really not as exciting on the day-to-day job as you think it is. Right. But I mean, who knows? I, what, what you find out is that most jobs are paperwork. <laughs> yeah. You know, you think they're all exciting, but it's mostly <laughs> documenting what you yeah, did and going to do and getting people to pay you for it, grants and all that. So. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Uh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. So that is a a long introduction to the Gospel of Thomas, Um, but I actually want to talk about that specific text a little bit more. I think it's fascinating. Um, When I first heard of it, it was kind of in scary terms, like it's this Gnostic Gospel that's Mm -hmm. super crazy and heretical, and I think I I probably heard one or two quotes from it that were just sounded grossly insane, and so I was like, ugh, this is why you never stray outside the Bible, because these other texts are ridiculous Mm -hmm. which looking back now i mean i I can't remember when or where i got that impression but when you actually go and read it i mean sure there are some weird parts but a a lot of it is exactly word for word the same as things we find in matthew and mark and luke Um, and we'll get into that a little bit so gospel of thomas was probably not considered for canon at all because it wouldn't have been considered orthodox because it was quite Gnostic. The Gnosticism you can see through, it teaches that Jesus only appeared human, but was not actually human, which is a pretty Mm. um, big deal. Um, Teaches that the physical and material world is a prison that must be escaped from, which um, again might be one of those things that feels a little bit true of some of the evangelical fundamentalist things we grew up with but wouldn't have actually been true in early Christian days. And even if you look at, you know, the end of Revelation is heaven coming to earth and new heaven and new earth. So 
you're not escaping right. from Earth. But. but I do still find the text fascinating, not because I necessarily believe this is the right doctrine or the right theology, but for other reasons, which I think hopefully will become clear. So the, it was likely written quite early, like probably at the same time as the other Gospels, I mean, probably as early as Mark, which was is the earliest of the Gospels. Wow. And one reason scholars think that is because it's not a gospel in the same way in that it's not a biography of Jesus. Like there's no birth narrative and it doesn't really tell, it doesn't walk through like the passion and the crucifixion. All it is is a collection of his teachings. Hmm. So this would have been one of the easiest things to collect on a document would just be, I mean, really it's just Jesus said this, Jesus said this. Sometimes it has a question from the disciples and Jesus said this. So it's just his teachings and sayings. And like I said, a lot of them are the same. So here's some of the ones that are exactly the same as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. For example, Jesus said, this is Gospel of Thomas, um, verse 9, if anyone wants to look it up. It's just basically one big chunk. So there's number 9, number 20, number 54. Number 9 is, Jesus said, now the sower went out and took a handful of seeds and scattered them. Some fell on the road. The birds came up and gathered them up. Others fell on the rock, did not take root in the soil, did not produce ears. Others fell on the thorns. They choked on the seeds and the worms ate them. Others fell on the good soil and it produced good fruit. It bore 60 per measure and 120 per measure. Suddenly you're like, oh, this doesn't feel so scary. I've been hearing that my whole life. Right. It also says, the disciples said to Jesus, tell us what the kingdom of heaven is like. And he said to them, it is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it falls on the tilled soil, it produces a great plant and becomes a shelter for the birds of the sky. Not so scary. Jesus said, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And over and over and over again, it says, he who has ears, let him hear. Which I think, you know, when you look at it through the angle of Gnosticism, you know, that's, to them, that is Jesus' statement of, like, this secret knowledge idea. Like, he who has ears, let him hear. That the one who understands will understand. Which, I mean, he does say that. Mm-hmm. But then there's also some different teachings. I think I've probably told some of my favorite ones on other episodes, but there's a couple new ones I want to share that I think are, they're fascinating because I don't necessarily know what they mean. For example, here's one. It says, Jesus said, let him who seeks continue seeking until he finds. When he finds, he will become troubled. When he becomes troubled, he will be astonished and he will rule over everything. Huh. It's just not, it didn't go where I expected it to go. Right. Well, it makes you think, you know, and I think, you know, I remember you preached uh, at our church a couple months back or whatever, and you was it was it Gospel of Thomas? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you 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 uh, told read, a parable from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you read a parable from the Gospel of Thomas, and then kind of just let people sit with it. And it wasn't one that appears in the other Gospels, similar to this. And it's just it was fascinating. I mean, you had people discuss, right? You had people discuss like what does that mean? And it became very much like a what it means to me or what it means, you know. And I think what what your point in doing that was to, was to show like this is what biblical interpretation interpreting these texts interpreting these stories of Jesus this is what it was supposed to be like it was supposed to be a discussion it was supposed mm-hmm. to be a go take this and you know use it somehow or think about it or let it impact you or not <laughs> or, yeah. you know if that one doesn't hit you then move on to the next one but like Think about it, or, you know, this person takes it this way because it means that thing. This person takes it this way because it means this thing. We've had it so prescribed for us, not just by, you know, the current pastor of your current church. I don't mean that. I just mean 
even that pastor, I mean, they were taught what that means in seminary. And that seminary was taught, the people teaching in that seminary were taught by their professors and the people, you know, it's like goes back and back mm-hmm. to where all these people are just kind of passing on, this is the meaning because it's been defined over, you know, a couple thousand years. So anyways, I think that's fascinating to hear something from one of these texts and say, I imagine if you could read, this, is the, this would be the same as like, uh, you know, an undiscovered chapter of Mark that we didn't know about. And you read it, and there's a parable in there, mm-hmm. and we're like, "Oh, no one's interpreted this for me before. What does this mean?" You know. And how would anyone know whether? I mean, it's no longer a question of right and wrong interpretation. Exactly. You might have better and worse interpretations only by the outcomes of those. Yeah, like what's helpful? What's not helpful? Yeah, helpful right. and unhelpful. But what, what brings you know good fruit? What brings like goodness into the world, and what doesn't? Mm-hmm. Sounds familiar. Well, I'll read it again, just for those of you who are like, I don't even remember it, and it was puzzling it says let him who seeks continue seeking until he finds when he finds he will become troubled when he becomes troubled he will be astonished and he will rule over everything i i wanted to include that one because i thought even just for those of us on this deconstruction journey that's such an interesting i mean seek until you find and when you find you'll be troubled like that's i think what a lot of us Mm. have felt and then when you're troubled you're astonished i mean at least for me it felt like you know, I just never, never thought my journey would go here. Right. And then, but then it says, and when, when you're astonished, you, you will rule overall. I don't know what that means, but right. maybe it means that, you know, there's no longer anything to be threatened by. I mean, there mm-hmm. is no specific one meaning to this. Right. So. I mean, to me, like when you said, there's nothing to be threatened by. There's no, for me, I just hear like, there's no information, kind of like we were talking about earlier. There's no stone I can't unturn. There's no curiosity voyage I can't go on, right? Like. I can take those paths. Mm-hmm. We call them, you know, bunny trails or whatever on here, rabbit holes, go down all of those because, I mean, it's fun. It's just a great way to live. Yeah. And as a human being, it's a great way to live. And I think what I've always believed about any kind of faith tradition or spirituality, like if there's truth there, you should be able to turn over every single rock, every single stone and go down every little bunny hole, rabbit hole and not be afraid. Yeah. I mean, maybe the, he will rule over all. Maybe it means that, you know, maybe it's less about ruling and more about not being ruled. Like you are no longer subject to, you know, the, the Mm. things you've been told and taught. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm just coming up with this as we talk, but I think that's the beauty of scripture, not just this verse, but like this, this is the beauty of what scripture is supposed to be. Sure. Yeah. But okay. Another one, Interesting because it's partially something we've heard and partially not. It says, number 48, Jesus says, If two make peace with each other in this one house, they will say to the mountain, move away, and it will move away. Mm, okay, so like the a, way we've heard that is... like a combo of a couple. Yeah, the yeah. way we've heard that is, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will obey. I don't know what version that is. That's the version that was on the seeds of faith song that we listened to when i was a kid so i don't know that okay (laughs) Uh, but uh and so i mean i remember looking at mount hood as we were driving around listening to this song as a you know 11 year old being like well i thought hmm i mean do i want to test out my faith on that mountain because i would really destroy the whole ecosystem around here if i just moved that like what why do i think i should move mount hood that's just probably a terrible idea like where's it gonna land so that was partially what i was thinking about but but then also I remember thinking like, I know I don't have enough faith to do that. 
And I just was so discouraged by that. So it's just... Imagine the person that was praying that the day Mount St. Helens blew. <laughs> They're like, it was me. It was all me. Well, I mean, and they that, also were like, I have an incredible amount of faith. I mean, yeah, imagine that. But I just, I, I thought, I remember that verse being so, in a sense, discouraging. Because, I mean, one, has anyone ever moved a mountain? I mean, I know there is a story of a saint and some middle medieval century, I think, that lifted up a mountain to prove this verse. But outside of that, it's always been kind of this dare. of Like, if you have enough faith, you could move that mountain. But I put in this context, let me read the Gospel of Thomas Version again. It says, if two make peace with each other in this one house, they will say to the mountain, move away, and it will move away. And, so, and in this context, it just feels very clear to me, at least. I mean, nothing is clear, obviously, but if that, that, that the mountain is a, an image, an analogy in this. There's two people who are making peace with each other, meaning there was conflict. And the mountain to me is just the conflict that was between them. And by mm. making peace, they have told the mountain to move. Right. This large thing that feels like right. this huge feels thing like between you. Feels like you can't you. get over it. Right. They got over it. Yeah. So I just thought, I just thought that one was interesting because it's like combo deal. Yeah. And it feels like a little more clarity on something, but maybe, you know, you never know. You, you never don't know. know what these are. Yeah. Okay. Last one from okay. the Gospel of Thomas. All and right. I mean, I'll just tell you, this is my full circle moment. I'll just read it. This is Thomas number 77. Jesus said, it is I who am the light, which is above them all. It is I who am them all. From me did all come forth, and unto me did all extend. Split a piece of wood, and I am there. Lift up the stone, and you will find me there. Mm. I just, I don't know. It just felt like when you were talking multiple times now about how this journey of faith and loss of faith and change of faith feels like just turning over every stone. And here's this, someone in the first century wrote down that Jesus said, lift up the stone and you will find me there. Right. Like, let's be clear, this wasn't tossed out because someone's saying, Jesus never said all those things. This is, you know, yeah. necessarily, right? Like, it they, just... They probably thought Jesus didn't say some of the things, but they thought Jesus did say other of the things in here. And so, right. who's to know? Jesus very well could have said this. Sure. Hmm. Wow. I feel like we need to, like... Again, we always say print shirts. Someone did. A, a listener. Oh, yeah, someone made the, the Jesus, uh, the leave her alone. Jesus yeah. said to the woman or something. We should like. link out to that or yeah. put it in some sort of store on Almost Radical. Thank you to you. Yeah. But, do, I mean, but if you want to, yeah, do something with this. Lift up the stone and you will find me there. Quote yeah. Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas. Right. I mean, yeah. Wow. I've, that needs to be on our website somewhere or something. Like... I like that. So I hope that's been a fun deep dive a bit into the Gospel of Thomas. I will say it's an interesting text also regarding gender. On the one hand, it has some very misogynistic teachings. That is part of why I don't necessarily say, this is my new favorite book of the Bible and I want it, or it's not in the Bible. It's not like, I'm not wholeheartedly saying like, this is the text we've been missing. I just think it's sure. cool, but it's also got some very problematic misogynistic elements. On the other hand, it does have quite a few lines directly from um, women like Mary and a woman named Salome um, asking Jesus questions just like the disciples are asking. So kind of, you know, it's not necessarily telling us about those women other than that it's including them in the texts the same way it includes the disciples, which tells us something historically about those women were around and participating 
just like the disciples were. Huh. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, in conclusion of talking about the Gospel of Thomas, is like, what do we do with texts like this? And, you know, could it be possible that we can actually learn things about Jesus from these texts? Like, is it possible that this text could contain things that are true? Like, I don't think... Which we've talked about the whole truth, right? you know, like... What is truth? Right, and like, is that what we're supposed to be after here? Like, trying to figure out what is true. But how do we relate to texts like this? And and does it change how we relate to the New Testament? Hmm. Yeah. Um, I th- I think it does. I think it's just... If anything, it's just an opening of our mindset, a recognition that, like, I'll, I think there's, there's power in hearing something because you can never unhear it. And like, so something like the blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like I will never, every time I hear that from the gospel of Matthew from now on, I'll know that that's also in the gospel of Thomas. Like these, right. this is a world where these people overlapped, these teachings overlapped. Like there wasn't, uh, there was no clear lines or distinctions between who's in and who's out, who has the real Jesus and who doesn't. And like, it's just, it's been a, a process and we have to acknowledge that. So I think the Gospel of Thomas is really interesting and go, there's lots of texts published about it now because it's been around for, we've known about it for close to a hundred years now. So um, go check it out. Interestingly, the Gospel of John was um, the most similar to Gnostic literature of the gospels in our new testament like it's the most which is part of why it may have taken longest to be kind of accepted as a gospel by the orthodox church like it has the most kind of separation of the divine and the human and like there's i mean just small hints here and there of a a little bit of gnostic influence in the gospel of john so it's just kind of an Hmm. interesting tidbit yeah but um back to the canon so we've talked about marcionism we talked about gnosticism and come into kind of the wrapping up of, of all of this by going, you know, well, first of all, why were these texts like the Gospel of Thomas, why was that hidden for so long? Like, why, how did that just completely go out of use? And it's likely because the New Testament canon that we know today was becoming more solidified, and some texts, especially Gnostic ones, were becoming more and more clearly rejected. So around the 4th century, kind of also around the time of the Nicene Creed, and the Council of Nicaea, we're seeing um, the church becoming more dogmatic about which texts are in or out and what beliefs are heretical and orthodox. So, all I mean, that's the time of Constantine. Everything's kind of culminating around the, the fourth century here. One of the key moments is a letter, actually, from Athanasius, who was the Bishop of Alexandria in the year 367. It's called the Festal Letter or the Easter letter. Basically, every year, the Bishop of Alexandria would send out a letter stating when Easter was going to be that year. I don't know who decides that now, but at that point, it was Bishop of Alexandria. Hmm. And and then in the letter, they would also talk about other things. And this is, in his letter, in, in the year 367, Athanasius wrote essentially the first list that was the 27 books of the New Testament as we know them today. So there had been many other lists for a couple hundred years that included a lot of the books that we have now and also included other books we don't have now, kind of mix and match. And we've talked about a lot of those throughout the series. But this was the first 27 matches to this day, like the books kind of started to solidify from there. 
wasn't solid from there. I mean, there. this is, you know, the, the fourth century. It's not like you can just send out a memo and everybody's on the same page immediately. You have different Christian sects all over the world who don't necessarily fall under the authority of the Bishop of Alexandria. But this is just the first time where there's that list seen that then continued on to this day. Um, his Old Testament list didn't match precisely. It actually puts Esther in like a subcategory that's more apocryphal and like he didn't consider Esther to be really part of the Old Testament. And he did include the book of Baruch and the letter of Jeremiah, which we don't have anymore. But but the point is that the New Testament had kind of come to essentially a consensus at that point. What's crucial about his letter, though, because those lists had been developing, the, the part that I want to point out is that in his letter, he also specifically condemns the use of heretical documents strongly. And scholars believe that this might have been a turning point in which the texts of other Christian branches began to be destroyed or hidden, and many of them went extinct. And Nag Hammadi was likely one of those libraries, the Nag Hammadi library being the one that contained these Gnostic texts, including the Gospel of Thomas. He was just gone. Yeah. Okay. So, so that's kind of the journey that we've walked on here. We've, in the last few episodes, gotten from the very beginning where there was nothing, where there was just Jesus talking, and then after Jesus, just people talking, and then starting to write things down, to now we have a bishop putting out a list of 27 books. And we've looked at the canonization process from a lot of angles. And it was far from over when Athanasius put out that letter. That was not the end of the process at all. Christian sects all over the world have added their touches. And I mean, many still do not necessarily have that exact same list, but the basic skeleton has remained the same. If you're thinking about Martin Luther, Martin Luther's changes were mainly to the Old Testament, um, taking a lot of Old Testament books and putting them in what he called the Apocrypha. There were a few New Testament books he didn't like, but it didn't ultimately change their status in the New Testament. So, so really, that's the journey. Like We've kind of talked about the, the formation of the New Testament. And, and my takeaways from all of this, and we've touched on this all throughout the series, is first that it's this was a very human process. That doesn't mean that by default it was flawed. It just means... For me, that it's harder to inherently trust. Um, what do you mean by that, though? Trust what? Like, Cause I, I think mean, this I remember, gets at the root of yeah, what needs to change, right? About how people perceive the Bible, the biblical texts. Like, so what do you mean by that? Well, I remember when I was first first starting to open up with some of my close friends about my deconstruction. I mean, just barely start like at the point where i would still just sweat through my clothes when i would mm-hmm. tell them about this been there raise brilliant. your hand out there if you have to <laughs> yeah. i mean this is probably for me in the first year um there's also the sweating that comes with pe- when people are questioning yeah. your journey right and your like experience and the things you've learned and the things and that's why i started this show is because like i wanted people to be able to get that scholarship and get like hear some of these ideas like thought out and be like, no, there is a, there is a rhyme or reason to this. There is, people have been thinking about these things. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Not to take this over. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, okay. I just, I still, I just remember the moment and the person I was talking to, you know, again, one of my closest people and we were really tracking, like he was following what I was saying all the way through this long conversation of like where my doubts and questions were at that point, I was still calling them my doubts and struggles. And I've learned 
that I don't need to call them that at this point. But where it all ended really came to that he he just felt, you know, the Bible is what it's supposed to be. And I, I can trust the process that it took to get there. And I was like, I don't know that I can't. Like, and that was just kind of where the conversation ended. Um, because, you know, he we couldn't, the conversation had kind of, he'd been using scripture and I'd been using it different ways and, or not using it. And once we got to that recognition, then like, we didn't really have anywhere to go from there. And I don't know, I think just. It does feel like there's, and I've said this, you know, to people, but like, it feels like there's, you know, how you view the Bible kind of determines everything. Like, I feel like it's really easy to have a conversation with someone who's like very open about what the Bible is and understands these things about like how this came to be and understands, you know, the making of the Bible and the formation and the canonization process and all these types of things. And that there's other texts out there and there's, you know, all this stuff like we can land in, you know, very different spots. But if you're, if you're understand that you're open to that, you're, you know, kind of soft on those topics. Like, I feel like you can have a, you can, we can have a conversation we can land yeah. in completely different spots. And or, I do think you can hold a, a traditional sure. view of, like you can you can hold divine and we've said this throughout you can believe that god was like integral to the process and deeply involved and influenced and inspiring all of this like there's nothing that proves that god was not involved all that we can say is that we can't prove to what extent god was or was not so it's kind of where some christians have come on evolution right like the evidence is so yeah. you know like you could it's believe in kind of a god directed evolution right, right just sure. the same way i mean that's or a big bang or whatever come back to this analogy sure. a lot in this episode but i mean that's really the formation of the bible is an, an evolution of of text the survival of the fittest mm, and yeah. you are absolutely welcome to believe what you want about god's involvement in it i think you we can have conversation as long as we can all acknowledge that we are choosing what to believe about God's involvement in that. That there is no one to tell us, that God doesn't tell us. God makes no claims anywhere about his own involvement, his, her, it's, theirs involvement in the process of not just writing the texts, but choosing which texts. Sure. This is all on us. And that's okay, because, I mean, that's what the rest of... I mean, that's what everything in the world is. It is, mm-hmm. it is all on us. And we, that just gives us a lot more responsibility and should make us a lot less dogmatic. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, that's the question I wanted to get to at the end here. And that's what we've been talking about is like, what does this change and what should this change for someone who's open to, like is hearing these things, right? And is saying, I do see what you're saying here. Like I see that this how this text, how these texts came to be, this library of texts, whatever you want to call it, like, what are the next steps for them? Like, what should this change for them in practice? I guess just op- more open hand, handedness about these texts, and yeah, yeah. I mean, I think in a lot of ways it's just a mindset shift. Like, we can still absolutely use these texts, but but maybe see them as. I mean, often we're we're taught, told that the Bible is like a love letter from God, and it might be. But I think if we just see it as like a love letter from a bunch of people 2,000 years ago, just could be a different way to read it. And 
I do want to throw out there for those of you who are like, oh, okay, the series is coming to a close and now I'm going to have to go figure out how to have this conversation with all my people and they're, they're going to think that I'm just absolutely heretical and I mean, I'm questioning the Bible. How could I be questioning the Bible? I just want to say, ooh, that's a big conversation to have and wish I could be there with you. But one thing that maybe, maybe you could take into that conversation is um, that questioning the canon is not questioning God. Again, God makes no claims about the canon. It is potentially questioning church fathers, church history, church processes, but it's not heretical to talk about the canon. Like, it's crazy that this is somehow an edgy topic, because this is, this is, like, no one makes claims that God chose the books. Like, no one has any statement that God made this happen. Yeah, I mean, kind of. I mean, right? some people claim that, but, like, that's not what the history of it right, says. Right, sure. So, people could can be uncomfortable, but what you're maybe, the questions that you're bringing up and the conversations you're bringing up is not, not heretical and not at all out of the bounds of what any early Christian would have been also talking about. Mm-hmm. Also for those conversations that you might be going into, just the reminder, I think a lot of time. I mean, it maybe depends on, on personality, but I think for a lot of us, if it's, it feels so contentious and dangerous and high tension going into these that I think we can get backed into feeling like we one have to have all the answers for our side and yes. two have to be against everything that they're for. Mm-hmm. Like the people and that's not true. Like I just you're just on guard, right? Like you're right. Like everything that's coming, you're like, okay. And I think that a, that a way to really make peace, like the Gospel of Thomas might suggest, a way to move the mountain that seems impassable, mm-hmm. is just to remember that you you don't have to reject much, if anything. You're just opening your mindset. You're not necessarily... You're adding something. Yeah, yeah, you're adding. You're not necessarily throwing anything out. You're just saying there, there's a lot more to the story, and I, I want to know about it, and like it's just it's part of the process. And mm. you're not necessarily throwing out, you know, God and God's involvement, like we talked about. Like, there's... I think you know, part of the reason it can feel contentious to have these conversations is because a lot of times those, you know, Christian friends of ours, they think that we're going to say something a lot more extreme. And and a lot of times I think we just play into what we know they think we're going to say, which sounds a little complicated. Like we maybe end up saying something more extreme than we even think because, I mean, maybe I'm just going to a niche of people here, but I just, I just want to encourage, encourage us all to, for one, just take our time and, and really feel through the process of like what like there is there's not a a right or wrong answer that we're trying to get to here if anything what we've said so many times throughout this series is that it's it's a human process and it still is a human process and now we are part of the process if anything we've kind of missed you know a thousand years of process by putting it on hold with this canon and now, like, we get to be part of testing the waters again of, like, and testing the texts again and going, what, which of these texts brings something into my life and which of these doesn't? And, you know, maybe some of them actually do something I don't like to my life. But the only, like, there's, a, I think there's a lot of hidden gems out there, maybe in texts we've never read before and maybe in texts we've read a hundred times but never really read with open eyes. And 
the only way to find those gems, I think, is to to look for them, to yeah. turn over the stone. Yeah. No, I love it. Oh, I love that. And we got to put that somewhere. We got to <laughs> want a mug. No, I don't know. It just feels like it means about a mug. Let's paint it on a rock. rock. Paint it on a rock by the front door. Come on. Let's all do that. Let's okay. do that all together. Well, this has been a great series. Um, and we're going to announce soon what the next series is. And you'll see that on the feed. Um, if you want to take part in more of what we do here, we have a whole community of people. There's like a couple hundred people in our private Facebook group. We'd love you to have you in there. People share their mm -hmm. stories. Sometimes people just be like, you know, I'm struggling with like what to listen to at Christmas time. Help me. And like people will share like songs or like the mm. way they listen to some of the, the old songs, but in new ways or they'll, you know, we talked about Advent in there. Just there's so much, right? Like it just, it feels, there's just people talking about, about stuff like that, helping each other out. And, you know, we, we chime in, we're in there. We'd love to have you in that. You can go to almostheretical.com to join the Facebook group, join the Zoom calls that we mm. do. You can take part in some of these or all of these, but we just try to give you a lot of ways to interact because it's it's can be lonely you're in that you know some random city in in the world and you don't know if there's other people around you that are also experiencing some of these things and i can tell you there are and it's hard to find them so <laughs> if you want to take part in these um we we have this all for you almostheretical.com there's links everywhere to find all that and we want to see you there we're trying to figure out when to do the next zoom call right now so get on the website and and take part in this group and we will catch you next time Thanks so much.